Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Steve Butler. Steve is the Chief Executive of Punter Southall Aspire, a major retirement savings business that blends a strong customer-focused heritage with a modern and technology-led outlook. Steve, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us this afternoon. Uh, Hi Scott. Hi Steve, absolute pleasure having you. Now um, the purpose of this discussion is to really establish your take on leadership as a whole. So if we sort of dive straight into that and look at that word leader in isolation for a moment, what does that word actually mean to you and how does it resonate? Yeah, I mean I, I think there are many different types of leader. Um, to suit you know lots of different situations in an organization or, or a situation. Um, but I think the skill of a leader is adapting your leadership style to suit the situation to get the best out of the people that you're that you're working with. So I think leadership is really about um, you know how you can help other people to succeed. Um, and I think, you know, in adapting your leadership style, you have to adapt it to a situation. So, you know, in a, a difficult or new situation, you might need to be more directive or, or provide more reassurance to, to your staff. Um, in a business as usual situation, you know, might, it might be more about sort of coaching and mentoring people to be successful with the, the challenges they're, they're facing. I think there's some real merit in that focus on coaching and mentoring because we often say that leadership and management are two fundamentally different things. But I think coaches, mentors can often be some of the most influential leaders out there, can't they? And they don't necessarily have to be the people that are essentially putting themselves on a pedestal, being at the head of a business or even in the public eye. These can be people who are just getting on with their business behind the scenes. And in many cases, they can be the people closest to us, such as friends, family and colleagues, can't they? That's important to consider. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I see lots of uh, different types of mentoring going on in my business. Perhaps a, a, a younger generation that are very savvy with the technology will kind of mentor older colleagues, um, you know, with the technology. Um, but conversely, I, I might have my older colleagues, you know, uh, mentoring uh, their their you know younger younger workers around some of the technical issues or, or some of the softer skills around the work that they do so I, I see it constantly going on in the business and I, I think it's quite important to create and foster a culture of that it's mm. it's not something you can force you know it's something that has to be built up with trust between individuals but I think if you create the right culture and environment for that to happen then then it will uh, you know it, it will grow of its own accord I think that's um, absolutely right. And um, we talk about, of course, uh, people management and the importance of that within leadership. When you have a team um, comprising of various different generations, uh, Steve, is it a challenge trying to essentially promote a positive culture and really make that cohesive, especially in the context of this sort of era where there seems to be a real chasm between generations at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a lot of uh, negative uh, press um, around the differences between the, the generations. Um, and certainly if you go on me- uh, social media, you can see some pretty nasty things written. Um, so I think in creating a, a work environment, you need to create a very inclusive culture for all generations. 
Um, now, potentially there is conflict because you have people from very different backgrounds coming together. But in order to sort of solve that conflict, you've got to kind of open uh, one another up to up to each other so they can understand each best each other better um, and, and work together closer. So I think it's about creating a culture which is inclusive and open and honest uh, and allows people to come to work and, and share them their personal selves without kind of fear of criticism of their of their age or, or their experience or whatever. I think that's incredibly important, um, getting over that fear of criticism. People need to be empowered with the confidence to have their voices heard and share ideas. And then if, for example, they may then suffer the little bit of a setback of, oh, maybe that idea doesn't quite work, or maybe they try something and it doesn't quite come off, that can then be embraced as a learning experience. Failure isn't something that we should necessarily be afraid of. And I think there is a little bit of that mentality, not just in the younger generations, but also in a little bit amongst the older ones as well. Yeah, and I, I think it's my responsibility as, as a leader of the business to be very open and honest about mistakes that I've made, uh, weaknesses that, that I have. Um, one, so so people can uh, work with me and, and support my weaknesses because we can't all be great at everything. But but secondly, to create that culture where it, where it's okay to kind of not be good at everything um, and to, to have failures. Um, you know, and I think some of the best entrepreneurs have made many failures along along the way. And the skill is about um, identifying them early enough, uh, reflecting on them, and, and kind of making sure that you learn from that and don't make the same mistakes again. And I think if that's a culture that you can create consistently across the business, then you've got a real opportunity to build an environment where innovation will will um, will flourish. I would agree with that uh, for certain. And um, you can, of course, learn from the failings of other entrepreneurs, uh, rightfully, as you say, there's a great um, deal of literature out there put together by some of the great visionaries like the Richard Bransons and Bill Gates of this world, of course. And as leaders, we're not lone wolves. We can look to people like that and we can learn from them and their leadership journeys. And you yourself, uh, Steve, as a business, um, you've, of course, put together two management books yourselves uh, recently about managing intergenerational teams and keeping hold of older talent. These are the sorts of sources that those aspiring to make it in business, particularly younger people, they can really look to that for a little bit of advice going forward, can't they? Yeah, I think uh, for me, I'm, I'm working um, in an SME. We're only 150 people in my organization, which is obviously very different from working in uh, Amazon or, or Virgin or, or, or some of these large global organizations. So I think it's quite important for, for us in the SME community to kind of share stories and share what's worked for us. And, and for me, uh, a, a management book was a, was a great opportunity to share some of the things that's worked well for me and, and haven't worked well for me um, in a way that um, they're very relatable to other small businesses and, and employees inside small businesses. Um, after all, we do, we do represent the largest proportion of the economy. And that's also something that's incredibly important to consider as well, the economic value of uh, businesses uh, like yourselves. And that's going to be really important going forward as well. And so innovation and adaptability to what's going to become the new normal is incredibly important. Thinking of the uh, the future just for a second, uh, Steve, if you actually had to now advise somebody who was maybe about to start their first day in a leadership role, what sort of advice would you go about giving them to make their journey a successful one? Yeah, I think, um, firstly, uh, you know, don't, don't look to these great leaders to kind of model yourself. 
um, you're, you're not uh, you're immediately going to have all the kind of charisma and, and kind of knowledge and, and, and everything that you need to, to replicate them. So I think the first thing you should do in your leadership role is set out to understand everyone in your team or in your business deeply. Because uh, I think that then gives you an opportunity to understand how people are going to react in different situations um, and how you can organize the, the the business best in those situations. And I think, you know, we're, we're all individuals. We all come at everything from a, from a different perspective and we all bring different things to uh, to the party. So I think that your job as a leader is to understand that and pull the best people together for, for particular projects, et cetera, to get the, to get the best outcome. Um, so I think as a, as a leader, um, your role is much more as a, a listener and a facilitator and a provider of a, a general direction rather than, you know, the, the traditional view that you would expect of a, of a charismatic person that would kind of tell lots of stories about how the world should be. Exactly right. And I think leaders uh, sometimes can sort of be a little bit um, sort of willing to jump the gun a little bit on that sort of thing and expect to be a finished product quite early on. But it is a process of learning and development and learning from mistakes and developing that charisma through experience and through interaction with other leaders and other people. And even in leadership roles, we're never a finished article, are we? It is a constant process of development and you never stop learning. That's something that people really need to not lose sight of. And also, most importantly, to focus on the long term rather than being distracted by just short term victories. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely agree with the, the continuous learning, um, and it's 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 part of the culture that I've tried to into, embed into our business. Um, yeah, the world the world is changing fast, so there's always things to to learn and to and to kind of change. So so we as a, as a habit um, in our project meetings and kind of um, management meetings, we always start the meeting with a with a TED talk. Uh, where we sit and collectively learn together, and then reflect on the on the on the TED talk, and um, you know talk about what we've learned and what we could apply into the business. So I, this is something that we apply into our business on on a daily basis, and I think that's really important in um, you know helping generations as as they grow. Um, through the business, you know, it's not just about qualifying as a professional and and stopping your learning. I think you need to continue learning right to, right to when you stop work. I think that's exactly right, Steve. And thinking of the uh, the future now and the long term, before we do wrap things up on the uh, the program today, what do you envision the next year holding for yourself and for Punter Southall Aspire as we move through the COVID nineteen pandemic and hopefully begin to look to the future on the other side of it? And also, what do you hope to achieve as well? Yeah, I mean, we we had to kind of overnight adapt to a, a new world of of working from home. Um, which we, we navigated reasonably successfully. But I think kind of three months in now, um, we have to change the way we're working as if this is, this is the way we're going to work for, for the longer term. You know, I can't see us returning to the office very soon. So, um, you know, we, we've got to, uh, bring the best of what it was like when we were in the office together with the best of what it's like working from home and, and collaborating online. So I think for me, that's what the rest of this year looks like. When I, when I look to the future, I think it's more of the same. You know, when we return to the office, 
there's been some great lessons that we've learned over the last few months. Um, uh, and we've got to continue that. Um, personally, I'm looking at our kind of uh, office uh, space and saying, well, you know, do I, do I need this much office space in the future? Are we more productive if people can work closer to home and only come into the office to collaborate and, 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 and work together when, when necessary? Um, so certainly I, I see um, a future where we have learned and we can innovate from what's happened over recent months and we can uh, deliver our proposition to clients in, in a more efficient way using using the, the technology that we've learned over recent months. I think you're absolutely right in what you're saying there, Steve, in the sense that even though it's been an incredibly difficult uh, time for business and for everyone and also an incredibly tragic time, there are going to be some real positives to come from this and that we're reflecting now on how we work. There will be a new normal and it's forced the hand of businesses to really review things and innovate. But also there's a renewed focus on sustainability, mental health and well-being um, as well coming forward from this. And these are going to be really, really positive steps uh, going forward as we do tackle these challenges in the future. Future. And to be quite honest, given how informative it's been listening to your view, Stephen, having you on the programme today, I think at some point in the next year, it would be fantastic from a listener's point of view to have you back on the programme with us and just catch up on how the business is getting on on the one hand, but also discuss what this new normal exactly is looking like as we begin to understand more. Yeah, I'd, I'd be delighted to. I think that would be wonderful, Steve. Um, It's a shame we don't have more time on today's uh, programme. Otherwise, we could talk about it all afternoon, I'm sure. But it's been a real pleasure, nonetheless, um, having you on the air to share your views with us. And until we do touch base again, please do take care and do stay safe with all still going on at the moment because we are not out of the woods with this yet and there's still plenty of time for things to change. That was Steve Butler speaking, the Chief Executive of Punter Southall Aspire. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Liz Field. Liz is the Chief Executive of the Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association, the trade body responsible for firms who provide such services for individuals and families. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Liz. And that is coming up next. I'm Jonathan White, and we're joined today by Liz Field, CEO of PIMFA, Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. What a great mouthful. Liz, thank you very much for coming on today. No, thank you for inviting me. No, not a problem. A complete pleasure. And I think uh, it would be a great place to start, if we may. There's maybe a little bit of background uh, for the listeners. Obviously, PIMFA does work in uh, uh, across the board these days, but of course it was only founded uh, uh, three years ago when, of course, um, MAPFA and uh, the WMA were merged. That's right, yes. Um, I think it really was a, a reflection of of where the industry was going in terms of uh, the provision of financial advice and helping individuals with their um, personal financial futures that it, we felt that it was necessary for the two bodies to merge together. Um, but both, well, certainly the Wealth Management Association and its predecessors have been around for nine, well, nearly 30 years yes. now, actually. But you're quite right. Um, as PIMFA, it's, it's been nearly three years now. And the, uh, probably a very wise move because, uh, the, the, uh, uh, PIMFA's been going from strength to strength, uh, since. Uh, what would you say at the moment uh, is are, are, are the priorities uh, for yourselves there? 
Um, I think there are a number of priorities. I mean, we represent a diverse group of um, of businesses, which all have one thing in common, which is that they face the clients, they they face the consumer. Um, so whether that is face to face or whether that is um, online. Uh, it's all about helping individuals to plan and save and invest um, for themselves and for their families. Uh, but we're going through uh, a number of, of key challenges. I mean, um, looking at a, 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 a macro level, if you like, um, markets are a little turbulent. Um, it's it's very challenging um, to um, kind of navigate the the uh, investment management world so uh, even more reason why you need a financial advisor and uh, and an investment management firm to help you um because it is quite a complex arena and that's not helped by the lack of financial education uh, more generally so um if you have that as a backdrop uh and then politically you have what's going on um with post brexit uh, and where the rules are going to come from in future, all of that is still to be negotiated. Um, so it, it's a whole melting pot of issues that uh, that our firms are trying to face. Oh, without a doubt. I think uh, it maybe leaves you quite a few understatements there in terms of the challenges that are yes. occurring <laughs> at the moment. But there's quite a lot to pick up uh, uh, on the on those points because uh, I, th- I think it's, 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 a, it's a unique time almost, Liz, isn't it, where there are a different set of challenges that advisors and individuals are uh, being confronted with from a lot of different angles. Um, and perhaps if we can start, let's start at the beginning, in fact, you bring up the issue of financial education. Yeah. Now, that's something I think uh, you can talk to anybody in the business and they'd agree with you on that front, Liz. We don't do it properly in this country. Where no. do you think, Liz, it should start from and how do we fix it? Okay, so I think, I mean, the first thing to say is that there's a lot of fantastic effort that we see across the whole of the financial services sector, uh, our sector um, amongst that, where they they try and go into schools um, and provide financial education. You go onto any website um, of some of our members and they've got some great educational material. Um, but there isn't a national framework that 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 wraps itself around the whole of the financial education efforts within our industry. And without that, um, I think that the, the businesses are facing a lot of um, barriers when it comes to actually getting into schools. Um, I mean, financial education is part of the, um, per, I think it's personal health and social education um, a piece of the curriculum, but there isn't an exam um, that's at the end of it. So when it comes to schools and, and how they're being judged, it's on metrics such as um, exams and without an exam for financial education, um, I think uh, it's, go- it's, just, it's just going to keep coming up against the same barriers. Mm. Um, and financial education is not the same as maths. So uh, what we'd also mm. quite like to see is is that we have more um, kind of money type questions within the maths curriculum, because that will also then bring it to life 
for young people, for uh, youngsters and you know school kids. It will bring it to life because it's about things that they have to deal with or you know that they they deal with on a day-to-day basis, which is money. So the more that we have that is populated in the curriculum that is about money, um, the better, I think, because that then we'll start to promote a culture of, of savings and investments, which we so badly need in our in 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 our um, in our country. Without a doubt, it's because and again, you've hit the nail on the head. Because there's only so much that can be done without the involvement of the curriculum in schools. Yeah, uh, and you know, you can, as you've pointed out very well, uh, it, it, companies can try all they all they might, but it, it's difficult if it's not a, a joint effort. Uh, yeah. And I think as, um, uh, for example, uh, with, with the new government we have, there have already been positive noises at the very least. Whether they become actions is another <laughs> thing entirely regarding what you could consider a, for, a, a, a far more applied mathematics in, in a lot of uh, uh, the system, but ty- time will tell. And that's something I think we could probably dedicate in the next hour to. Liz. Yes, but I think you're right. We probably <laughs> shouldn't. Um, now, looking at and a couple of other points to pick up that you've already raised here, Liz, uh, and it goes back to the word you've already said, which is uncertainty. Uh, it, it seems as if the markets, investors, people, we've been in a state of limbo for the last three and a half years. Uh, we're talking, of course, three months after, two months after uh, a general election that resulted in a a large majority for the Conservative Party, and therefore at least we have now uh, uh, left the European Union. Without without dragging you down the political rabbit hole <laughs> here, at least, is there a hope now that because of that clarity, we may start to see a far more s- s- far more certainty in the market? And what are your hopes for the next twelve months? Um, I think I think that that we've still got a little way to go because um, whilst you know thirty first of January came and went, um, you know we're now we're now in a negotiation period. We're now in a transition period, um, and for for UK um, savers and uh, and investors. Uh, in terms of where the rules are made, there's still there's still not some clarity about that. Um, you know, we're we're still uh, well, we don't know yet whether we're still tied um, or will be tied to the um, European rulemaking um, down the line. That's still to be negotiated. I mean, we've always said that actually for for savers and investors, we need stability in the markets and we need access to funds. Um, however, it, it, you know. The majority of our of our firms look after UK savers, um, and therefore, a one of the positives we see is the ability to have a a rule book that makes sense for UK savers and investors and UK firms. Um, so there's an uh, we think that there's an opportunity there with definitely without um, watering down regulation. So we're definitely not talking about less regulation. What we're talking about is smarter regulation, which makes sense for firms and makes sense for clients. Um, and as we've got a very unique industry in terms of savings and investments um, um, in Europe, in Europe, England or U- the UK rather and and Ireland are unique amongst our European counterparties. So when you have a European rule book 
or a rule book that is set in Europe that doesn't bear any relation to the model of intermediation that we have here that has caused us problems in the past and we're hoping that we we will be able to affect that in the future with a local regulator and a local rule and a local rulemaker but we will see that is still all part of the of the melting pot so whilst I'd like to be posi- positive and, and optimistic about the market <laughs> um, we've still got this period um, of, uh, of negotiation and uh, until we see where we go to with that uh, and of course you've got financial services and fisheries amongst the same piece you know indeed absolutely absolutely so we've still got to wait and see i think it, absolutely um and it will be a, a interesting year if nothing else um yes. uh, now you, you you mentioned there at least uh, the role of uh, of course regulators i know uh, in the last month or so, obviously, uh, uh, PIMFA has uh, given its fair amount of critique to um, the SCA. Um, are they, at the moment, doing their job correctly? Um, I think part... I, th- I don't envy the regulator one iota. Um, uh, I think if you look at the the number of people that they have in the supervisory team and the number of firms that they have to regulate, um, it, it, it is not an enviable job um, by any stretch of the imagination. Yes, we have been critical, not least of all because we are expecting um, better supervision to prevent firms from failing and certainly to prevent firms from failing in the spectacular way that they have uh, in the last few years, which has impacted on the size of the financial services compensation scheme levy. And this levy is paid for by by firms within the industry. And our firms are a majority of small to medium-sized firms, and their bills have gone up exponentially. Our criticism is that, you know, we we don't object to having an FSCS levy um, or, you know, the lifeboat funds to pay, you know, recompense to to consumers. Uh, and, and our view is, has always been that the polluter pays, but the polluters have, have long since folded by the time it comes to any payment, which means that good firms are paying for bad firms. So the system, we believe, is broken. Um, and, and I think that is about the regulatory perimeter. Um, you know, what is it that the, that the lifeboat fund should be protecting? The perimeter is too big. So that, you know, what is the nature of risk? That all needs to be um, uh, redefined, we believe, and recalibrated, which then enables you to determine well, if that's what risk is, then how do we protect it and how do we levy for it? Mm. Um, and that is all linked to better supervision. So that is something we have been critical about. Um, we're in the process of finalizing a paper uh, which we um, which we have positioned in a constructive manner, which is these are some of the things that we believe FCA, you should be looking at in your supervisory process, and we want to help you to do your job better. Now, I I know there's no such thing as a 
a magic wand, Liz, and perhaps it'll be putting you on the spot. <laughs> but if let's imagine, let's let's imagine you did have one just for the just for this afternoon, perhaps, and you were able to change one thing about that uh, system. And perhaps I shouldn't ask this because if your report isn't out yet, you might not want to reveal something that's in it. Um, but if you could, um, what, what would be your number one priority? If we, if we were to, if I were, my number one priority to, to solve the system. In terms of reform. In terms of reform, what regulatory yeah, reform, yes. you mean? Um, I think, oh goodness me, the one thing. Um, it is a bit of a mean I, question. Uh, it <laughs> is, gosh, yes, wow. Um, I, I think it's about the regulatory perimeter. Sure. Um, I think let's have a look at the regulatory perimeter, um, which is, you know, gives some certainty to to clients about what is protected and what is not protected, which also then gives some assurity both to them and also to the advisors who have to advise those clients on what what's the pathway to success for them and what and and I think if there's some clarity around all of that then everybody will be will be better off great now I'm conscious of the time here Liz. it's already catching up with us so perhaps if we can take a, a little step back and uh, and look at um, uh, the operations of Pimfer again it's what Pimfer do does so well is its ability to build relationships with so many uh, different uh, organizations can that really is be underestimated the importance of having those working relationships with with the departments and the organizations that you do have no i don't i, I think it's absolutely fundamental um to any business actually mm. but it's certainly something that that we have in the middle of the stick of rock that is PIMFA. Uh, I mean, we talk about the, you know, the values that we have as an organization. We, we are a small organization uh, and we can't do our job unless we work in partnership and collaboration with others. So relationship building um, and maintaining and creating a good foundation of relationships is absolutely fundamental to what we do. Without a doubt, and I think that's the key point, Liz, isn't it? That that's so applicable to any realm, whether it's business or or politics or uh, any areas of life. And I think, and because of the time here, we we I, I must start to wrap up. But um, perhaps I can ask Liz, looking forward, and I know the next twelve months is full of uncertainty. What are uh, the plans Pimfa has for it, nonetheless? Um, so I think our well, our key priority this this next twelve months is 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 to be talking um, much more, um, and we 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 have been lobbying um, a fair bit on this. But because of Brexit, um, our ability to actually kind of get into um, see the policymakers on both sides, I think, to have that dialogue has been a challenge. Um, but we're finding that that is changing, that you know, they, they want to hear from us. So I think our priority is around that regulatory perimeter um, and what does what does regulation look like for, uh, for us moving forward. But at the same time, it's not just about the future of regulation, but it's also about the future of supervision mm. because the two of those go hand in hand. Um, so those those two um, are kind of what are, are the main 
the main areas over the course of this next year. Having said that, um, you know, we have a manifesto that's got six that's got six pillars in it um, and regulation and supervision and the future of that is is just um, kind of, is just one of those things. There are a whole host of another of other things promoting the sector as a as a force for good and as an integral part of a of an individual's kit bag um, for financial and mental well being uh, is is another key strand of, of activity. So I think future of regulation, future of supervision. And then promoting the sector as an integral part of uh, of um, everybody's kit bag in building their personal financial futures. Well, Liz, there might never be a, a more important year, uh, or has not been in a while, that will determine the future of all of those things. And perhaps never a year where so many people pay attention to what happens to Britain's fish stocks. Um, but it's been it's an absolute pleasure discussing that uh, leadership with you today. Uh, I hope very much we can sit down perhaps later this year uh, when there's a bit more clarity perhaps and talk through a few more things. Thank you. I would love to do that. Liz, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.